This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, November 15th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellums. This is KUAF. And you can take us with you wherever you go by using the free KUAF app. Ahead this hour, learning more about what's under us. It takes training to be able to go out to the field, which is an uncomfortable place for a lot of people, right? We get dirty, we get wet, there's bugs, uh, you name it, a lot of reasons not to go to the field. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore reports on soil judging at the University of Arkansas and just ahead, the work of the U of A Terrorism Research Center. State officials expect to add more medical marijuana dispensaries in order to meet growing demand. This week on Arkansas PBS, Scott Harden with the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration said the state is nearing the legal cap of 40 licenses for dispensaries. They've issued 38 of those, uh, 37 of the 38 are in operation, uh, and we think those last two licenses will go out the door probably in early January. Those will be in southwest Arkansas. Um, And that really has been one point of contention, that number of dispensaries. Harden says Arkansas has some of the most restrictive laws regarding medical marijuana, especially in contrast to neighboring Oklahoma. According to data from the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, that state has over 4,000 licensed dispensaries. Increasing the number of dispensaries in Arkansas would require changes to state law. Arkansas is adding just more than 300 new cases of COVID-19. According to Sunday numbers provided by the Arkansas Department of Health, the ADH counts five newly confirmed deaths from the virus and a net increase of 10 active cases. Hospitalizations yesterday decreased by a net of 10 patients. A statewide nonprofit is documenting the stories of Arkansans who receive health insurance through the state's Medicaid program. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, in collaboration with the social work programs at the University of Arkansas Little Rock and the University of Arkansas campus in Fayetteville, has been collecting stories of Medicaid recipients in the state, in particular those from minority and underserved communities. UALR social work graduate student Deidre Gray says those on Medicaid reported having overall greater access to health care than uninsured Arkansans. Medicaid enrollees reported that they were more likely to have a usual source of care. They were more likely to have had a visit to a doctor in the past year. They were more likely to have had a specialist visit in the past year and less likely to have delayed medical care in the past year. However, Grace says adults with private health insurance reported having fewer barriers to accessing care than those on Medicaid. Cassandra Glover, Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families Health Policy Fellow, says the goal of the program is to look for gaps in service so those gaps can be addressed with policy changes. Recently, within the last two weeks, we found out that the Arkansas Medicaid program is going to have a client voice council. So one of the goals of our organization is going to be connecting some of these storytellers to um, apply to be a part of this council so that their voice can be heard. Some barriers reported by Medicaid recipients include a limited number of doctor's appointments available in one year, as well as having a hard time finding providers within their insurance network. More information available at aradvocates.org. The Arkansas Razorback soccer team will host another NCAA tournament match this week. The number 7 Razorbacks defeated Northwestern State 5-1 Friday and will host Virginia Tech this Friday night in Fayetteville. And the John Brown University women's soccer team advancing to the NAIA National Championship Tournament after winning the Sooner Athletic Conference Tournament Friday night. That conference title is the fourth in JBU women's soccer program history.
This is Ozarks at Large. The University of Arkansas-based Terrorism Research Center is undertaking a three-year investigation into both online and offline radicalization and domestic violent extremism in the United States, sponsored by both the right and the left. The grant-funded project is part of a broader national investigation to better understand pathways to terrorism and domestic extremist crime in the U.S., with a larger goal to prevent it. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The Terrorism Research Center based at the University of Arkansas is among only a few scholar-led research institutes monitoring and investigating domestic terrorism and extremism in the United States. The federally funded nonpartisan Terrorism Research Center housed in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the U of A is directed by Jeff Grunewald. The, the current mission of the center is to, is to use the tools of social science and data analytics uh, to promote safer communities. Uh, we want to inform evidence-based policy. And uh, also important, we want to train the next generation of researchers and law enforcement professionals. The center was founded in 2003 by Brent Smith, a domestic terrorism studies pioneer who served as director until 2019. Smith authored the American Terrorism Study, a watershed empirical database to better inform criminological theory, government policies, and federal prosecutorial objectives. Grunewald is also an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology, teaching part-time. So I, I've been the director uh, here for a couple years uh, now. And so one of the things that uh, we wanted to do uh, when, when I came in is to expand the scope uh, of, of research here uh, to encompass uh, more topics like cyber extremism, uh, financial terrorism. The National Institute of Justice this autumn awarded a total of nearly $7.5 million to eight entities to investigate online radicalization and domestic violent extremism in the U.S. with the aim of preventing spread. The Terrorism Research Center was awarded a three-year $900,000 grant to investigate how and where domestic terrorist and extremist groups operate in the U.S. are communicating missions and agendas. Grunewald, principal investigator says he's building on previous research. Uh, what's unique about this uh, project uh, is we're able to look at risk factors uh, um, and protective factors and how they are associated with uh, so many different types of terrorism and violent extremism. And doing that uh, by looking at both the radicalization stages of the process as, as well as um, the actual uh, uh, preparing for and executing attacks. Grunewald says his team will compare and contrast nonviolent extremists with violent ones, those who provide material support and certain behaviors, like allegiance to a certain group or broad movements that trigger violent hate crimes. Now we're able to look at how these factors uh, compare across the extreme far right, um, the extreme far left, um, the, uh, you know, for example, and, and we, we uh, include eco-terrorists along with the far left, and of course the radical Islamic terrorists, um, and we're able to also, oh, something I'm excited about for this project is uh, the data collection is advanced enough where we can actually start to look at how uh, those, those different types of crimes that come to fruition um, compared to those that are failed and that are foiled um, by law enforcement primarily. 
The research team will mine four databases, including the U.S. extremist crime and cybercrime databases in the Center's American Terrorism Study, authored by founder Brent Smith. Katie Ratcliffe is Associate Director and Research Program Manager at the Terrorism Research Center. She manages federal grant projects and trains graduate assistants. So the American Terrorism Study is one of the foundational databases that we're using for the project. Uh, it's the longest running study on uh, project on terrorism in the United States. It dates back to the 1980s uh, when Dr. Smith worked with um, then Senator Jeff Sessions on getting a list of domestic terrorists um, and domestic terrorism investigations from the FBI uh, and looking at uh, federally indicted uh, individuals um, who have been charged on terrorism related charges. So the American Terrorism Study is uh, expanding all the time. Um, it's long running and it's primarily focused on those who've been charged with federal uh, terrorism related offenses. Um, while the extremist crime database is unique because it includes people who have been indicted at the state level as well. Um, and that database goes back to 1990. So not all extremists are federally indicted, um, nor do they necessarily survive their attacks to then be indicted. So those extremists would be included in the extremist crime database. Another is the Bias Homicide Database, authored by Grunwald. I created it about 15 years ago uh, when I was doing my doctoral work. Uh, and I, was, I realized that um, a lot of those who are committing these different types of uh, targeted forms of violence um, against uh, social minorities, um, that they were um, not associated with broader terrorist movements. So I, I wanted to know how those individuals compared to what we more commonly think of as terrorists and, and violent extremists. So uh, we have, uh, uh, I guess now 30 years of data um, on these offenders, their victims, uh, so that's that's one of the databases um, that's uh, in this uh, project. And then finally, the uh, the extremist cybercrime database is the newest of, of, of the four databases. Uh, it is um, not housed uh, at the center uh, um, at the University of Arkansas. It's actually housed at Michigan State uh, University and John Jay College in New York by two of our collaborators that are on the project with us. And so we're, we're excited about integrating this. And I think this, uh, you know, the integration of this database with the others that focus more on uh, actual um, attacks uh, in the real world, um, that uh, this is kind of what makes this project unique in that we're able to look at both online, offline types of um uh, ideologically motivated crimes. In recent years in the U.S., a large number of extremist and domestic terrorist organizations have been suddenly deplatformed, kicked off digital sites, including those who espouse QAnon, Stand Your Ground, gun rights. Former President Trump stopped the steal anarchist, Proud Boys ideology, paramilitary factions, and dozens of racist hate groups, making such actors harder to track. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's been relatively easy for uh, extremists to communicate on uh, even YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter without raising too, um, you know, too many eyebrows. Um, and then, which makes it also difficult uh, to sort through, you know, some more benign uh, messaging, uh, even, even if it is, you know, deemed ra uh, kind of radical in nature, 
from those that type of communication that you know is uh, in, indicative of mobilization to violence. But then the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol revealed new underground platforms adopted by extremists and terrorists, Grunewald says. January 6th demonstrated how extremists were increasingly turning to uh, social networking and, and encrypted messaging platforms like Telegram and, and Parler and Gab and and 4chan. Um, and so, uh, and they were using these to plan and, uh, and prepare for uh, uh, protest, uh, of course, but, uh, and in some cases, planning for more um, organized uh, types of violence, as, as we now know. Radcliffe says the Century's Grant Project research findings will be made available to federal, state, and locally established law enforcement fusion centers that collaborate on intelligence matters. Federal agencies and policymakers working to develop innovative solutions for mitigating pathways to terrorism and domestic extremist crime. So our, our major objective with this project um, is to develop risk assessment tools that Jeff mentioned earlier the violent versus nonviolent trajectories and, you know, helping uh, law enforcement personnel and others understand uh, how to distinguish between individuals who appear to be on a violent trajectory versus, you know, more of a nonviolent trajectory. Um, So with most of our funded projects, uh, and this one won't be any different, uh, the center works to get its findings out. Um, mostly via research briefs, infographics, things like that on our website. Um, We also try and meet virtually and in person with Homeland Security uh, community members and and policymakers, Um, and then just our website and social media accounts and uh, getting it out through research partners as well, since we work with others pretty routinely. Grunewald believes the work of the Terrorism Research Center will help blunt potential threats posed by growing political unrest in the United States. Yes, I, I think so. And I, I, I hope that, you know, we can be part of uh, the, the, the conversation that is evidence-based. Uh, you know, we are a, a nonpartisan research organization, make, making sure uh, that everything that uh, we are putting out there in these research briefs and infographics is based off of sound uh, social science. The Terrorism Research Center at the University of Arkansas counts three full-time staff, including an in-house attorney, graduate assistants, and up to 20 undergraduate interns across disciplines who receive course credit. The center is primarily funded by donations, the National Institute of Justice, and Department of Homeland Security START program housed at the University of Maryland. START advances science-based knowledge about the causes and consequences of terrorism and the effectiveness and consequences of responses to terrorism. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead on Ozarks, we move from terrorism research at the U of A to soil judging at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore has that story for us just ahead. This is KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. What's your favorite thing or maybe a memory that's associated with Thanksgiving? Personally, one of my favorite memories of the holiday is of going to my grandmother's house as a child where we would spend the early afternoon into the evening hours feasting, visiting with my cousins, aunts, and uncles, and finally napping before driving home. The best part of the whole day was the pies, pumpkin, minced meat, and sour cream and raisin from my grandma, chocolate and pecan from my mother, and occasionally a cheesecake would work its way into the mix from one of my aunts. You can share your memory, or what about Thanksgiving that makes you smile, with the help of KUAF Connects. 
Just go to the App Store and download the KUAF app for iPhone, click the Connect button at the bottom of the screen, set up your account, and leave your message. You can also call our Connects line at 479-575-6577. Again, that's 575-6577. KUAF Connects. Your voice matters. And many of us will be traveling by car during this Thanksgiving holiday. New recommendations about improving the Arkansas Department of Transportation's bridge inspection program have been released in a report by the Federal Highway Administration. The I-40 Hernando de Soto Bridge fully reopened in July after being closed for two months because of a crack found in the bridge that links Memphis and West Memphis. The 106-page report reviews RDOT's policies, procedures, and standard operating practices to effectively improve the bridge inspection program. Dave Parker, public information officer for RDOT, says there are several modifications to be made. We, RDOT, came up with 10 different areas that we can improve, enhance our bridge inspection program. Most notably, we are reorganizing the leadership of that program. We are adding personnel to the heavy bridge maintenance section. We are ensuring that a fracture critical bridge such as the I-40 is not inspected by the same lead inspector in consecutive years. Other recommendations include periodically performing ultrasonic testing on the bridge welds and having on-site supervision by a professional engineer for heavy bridge inspections. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with adventure gear and clothing for hiking, kayaking, and more. Pack Rat carries dog packs, life vests, and accessories for the furry family members too. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. Happy Monday. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas defeated Texas A&M this year in a heated competition. And no, we're not talking about the football game earlier this year. We're talking soil judging. University of Arkansas professor Chris Bry led a group of six students to win first place at a soil judging competition hosted by Texas A&M. The team will compete at the national level in the spring. But how do you win at soil judging? Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore brings us this field report. It's the first dry day in a week, which means it's the perfect opportunity to go Stand in a giant hole in the ground and look at some dirt. Chris Bry is the leader of the dirt pile, directing the six students on what tools they'll need from their bucket, what paperwork to put on their clipboards, and he offers a quick reminder of things to look out for when it comes to soil judging. Okay, you guys uh, double check your buckets real quick. Make sure that you've got everything that you need. Bry is a professor of applied soil physics and pedagogy and came to the University of Arkansas in 2001. And one of the classes he teaches is soil profiles. He spent the last 20 years teaching the nuances of dirt. People would easily think, oh, dirt is dirt is dirt, no matter where you are, when you are. But that's actually couldn't be farther from the case. Which leads us to soil judging. Soil is different, not just in different parts of the country, but in different parts of the same field sometimes. And whether you're a farmer working on how to best plant your crops or 
you're a business owner looking to build your first store, knowing what is underneath your feet is critically important to your livelihood. So, how does soil judging work? Well, the first thing you need to know is that soil has layers, and those layers are called horizons. From a judging standpoint, or even an on-site uh, characterization, we describe the morphological features of uh, the horizons uh, as deep as we can. And so we do things like texture. We grab a handful of soil and we mash it around moist in our hand and we can feel the sand, silt, and clay. And then interestingly enough, that is a skill that people can get good at. To judge the different horizons, students out in the field use a cupcake tin and each mud pie a unique variety of soil. One student, Zeb, is pinching the soil between his thumb and index finger. What are you looking for when you feel uh, The grade of it, like how strong it is or weak it is. Like, I mean, that's weak right there. But, you know, you may get one here that takes a little bit more to break. It's hard to tell, though, with it being so wet. Mm -hmm. That's kind of making it difficult here because if this was dry, this would probably be... A lot firmer? Yeah, a lot firmer. You'd have to actually try to break it instead of, like, I mean, right here. Like, you can just, just break that apart. That would be that way regardless. Bry says judging soil is a lot like playing a musical instrument. If we know the tempo of the song and what key it's in, then a talented musician would be able to not only follow along, but potentially jump in and play. The same is true with getting a feel for the texture of the soil. It takes training to be able to recognize and understand and, and uh, read a sheet of music. It takes training to be able to go out to the field, which is an uncomfortable place for a lot of people, right? We get dirty, we get wet, there's bugs, uh, you name it, a lot of reasons not to go to the field. But this is a skill that is actually being lost these days. There's fewer and fewer people that have these abilities and we need them. There's more to soil judging than just smushing some dirt between your fingers, though. Another element of it is using a codified color chart, among other things, to determine more characteristics of the soil, including one very simple solution in a spray bottle, which a certain radio journalist overanalyzed. I won't call him out by name. I don't want to embarrass him. What about this solution you're using? What is that, and how does it help? This? Yeah. Water. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Highly technical. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all I got. <laughs> the water is important because they want to do the color moist because when the little wetness darkens the color, so that's just a way to standardize color. Um, some soil scientists will do a dry color but then you end up with variations in moisture and, and it's a little less standardized. So they moisten the soil and do the color and then it, uh, they use the water to help uh, moisten the soil to texture by feel. Another element of soil judging is evaluating soil structure. That's the stuff inside soil besides the typical sand, silt, and clay. Throw in a little organic matter into the mix. Now you have larger units than just the individual sand, silt, and clay particles themselves. 
And these can range from BB size granular structural units to actually large prisms that are tall in the vertical axis and narrow in the horizontal. So soil structure plays a secondary role in how nutrients and water and gases enter and leave the soil. So we have texture, we have color, we have soil structure, and the history of wetting and drying of the soil. The soil, looking at the soil for a trained person, is like reading a history book. Uh, You can tell if the site, the particular site you're looking at, has been really wet in the past. Bry's Soil Profiles class is an elective, but the students who take it are eligible to compete against other schools in the soil judging competition. In October, a group of seven students competed in a regional collegiate soil judging competition, and U of A students individually came in first, second, fourth, and fifth, which qualifies them for the national contest in the spring. Students who take the Soil Profiles class are not just learning skills that automatically attract future employers when they look at the resume. But then there's a sense of the competition. It's like, can we compete against other, you know, rival schools? There's a lot of parallels to the the actual athletic sport uh, event, but this is an academic uh, sport uh, that I really take a lot of pride in. My students do as well. Um, They want to do well personally. They want to do well as a team. And I think they really just have some innate sense of, you know, this is competition. I want to not blow it for myself. I want to look like I know what I'm doing. And uh, we have long days. Uh, We practice hard. Uh, We're outside all the time dealing with the elements. The contest is outside, so it's not nice and easy in secure, non-element conditions uh, that we've got to deal with, uh, rain, potentially heat, wind, dust blowing in your face. And our last competition, of all things, there was a tarantula walking around. It's just these things that people take for granted about being in the outdoors. While there were a lot of things in this pit in Fayetteville, I can confirm with complete certainty that there were no tarantulas. At least I hope so. For Ozarks at Large... I'm Matthew Moore. Okay, from soil to bluegrass now. The Delmacory Band has a special relationship with Northwest Arkansas and, I would say, Ozarks at Large. The band kicked off one of our live Roots Festival editions of Ozarks at Large a few years back. Remember those? We're going to do one again someday. Uh, those performances met with wild applause on that afternoon. And the band's first post-COVID-19 full concert was in Fayetteville. In fact, the band's first two post-COVID full concerts outdoors by the Roots Festival headquarters back in the spring. So we take notice here when there is new music headed our way from Dell and the band. And while the next CD isn't available until early February 2022, a preview single, Running Wild, has been released.
Del McCory Band and Running Wild. It's the preview cut from their forthcoming CD, Almost Proud. That CD, full CD, expected to be out in early February 2022. And no, the band isn't coming close to us on their latest tour leg, but if history proves anything, we should stay alert for maybe a 2022 date somewhere close. You can learn more about the band, the new album, and where you can see them in 2021 at delmacquarieband.com. And a reminder, we keep you up to date with what music is close to you every Thursday on Ozarks at Large. We go into the Harold and Blanche Cock News Studio. That's where Timothy Dennis resides when he's at work. And every Thursday, he tells us about the next seven days of live music opportunities throughout the Arkansas River Valley, Northwest Arkansas, and the region. Live music updates every Thursday at noon and 7 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Happy Holidays from the KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. It's your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Woodstone Craft Pizza, Botanical Garden of the Ozarks, Fayetteville Roots, and more. Winners announced Friday, December 10th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Northwest is now offering COVID-19 vaccines for children ages 5 to 11. Dr. Sharon Reese, director of the UAMS vaccine program, says despite some early delays, her clinic now has enough doses to administer up to 200 shots per day. We have good supply now. We have lots of pediatric vaccines in stock, and we don't anticipate that to change. Um, So we anticipate a steady supply from the Arkansas Department of Health uh, throughout the remainder of the year and into 2022. The Pfizer vaccine for children under 12 was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration at the beginning of the month. Dr. Reese says the pediatric vaccine is one-third of a dose of the same vaccine for adolescents and adults. She says side effects are rare and mostly minimal. So the most common side effects for the COVID vaccine in this age group is just like with other vaccines. You can expect some redness and swelling at the site of injection and maybe a low-grade fever for up to 72 hours after the injection. Um, The fever can be treated with your regular anti-fever medications like Tylenol or Advil or ibuprofen. Um, So that is pretty much the same as what you would expect for other vaccines. Um, We aren't really noticing a high rate of anaphylaxis or allergic reactions to this vaccine. Um, So the side effects seem to be quite typical of what we see for vaccines in this age group. UAMS Northwest is administering vaccines for children through its drive-up clinic at 1100 North Woolsey Avenue in Fayetteville, Mondays through Fridays from 10 a.m. until 5.30 p.m. or 
until the last dose is available. Dr. Reese says the shots are free to the public. Registration not required, but children must be with a parent or legal guardian to receive their shot. Well, I'll tell you on a personal note, um, the first day that it was available, we had all of the physicians and nurses and people who worked in healthcare bringing their children very excited to be able to finally um, vaccinate their children in that age group. So it was a really happy day for us at UAMS. Um, and, you know, the kids tolerated it really well. Um, nobody had any adverse events. Nobody had any allergic reactions. And it's been pretty uneventful thus far. In addition to the pediatric vaccine, UAMS Northwest is also offering booster shots for adults. To learn more, visit UAMSHealth.com. The March of Dimes is giving Arkansas a failing grade when it comes to maternal and infant health. The nonprofit's annual report, released this morning, gave five states in Puerto Rico grades of F, Arkansas included. Arkansas's percentage of live births born preterm is at 11.8%, higher than the national average. That's a tenth of a percent lower than last year's rate in Arkansas, but still, it's the second highest preterm birth rate in Arkansas in more than a dozen years. Arkansas's infant mortality rate is 6.9%. That's more than a percentage point higher than the national average. The March of Dimes study also finds disparity in maternal and infant health in the state, with the preterm birth rate among black women 46% higher than all other women. In Benton and Sebastian counties, the preterm rate worsened compared to last year. And though it remained unchanged in Washington County, the preterm birth rate for Washington County was still a high 11.4%. That's a higher rate than either Benton or Sebastian counties. The full report for Arkansas and the entire nation can be found at marchofdimes.org. The Texas law that bans most abortions went into effect in September, and there are no exceptions for rape or incest. Advocates who work with survivors of sexual assault are speaking out. The impact of finally coming forward and then being told there's no options for you is devastating. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And you can listen to us at KUAF.com. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, our militant grammarian is bringing the obscure, but very interesting, word knowledge. Hey, I learned a new word, word. Okay, this usually means a quiz, but go ahead. (laughs) It does. Paraprosdokian. You heard her. There will be a quiz tomorrow. So you have a bit of time to brush up on your paraprosdokians. Catherine Schultz, our militant grammarian, back tomorrow at noon and 7 on a Tuesday, Ozarks at Large. You can also make our show mobile with the Ozarks at Large podcast, available for download or subscription for free through any major podcast distributor. I, Bill Clinton, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the State of Arkansas. The Constitution of the State of Arkansas. And that I will faithfully discharge the duties. And that I will faithfully discharge the duties. Of Governor of Arkansas. Of Governor of Arkansas. Upon which I am about to enter. Upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. That is a big moment. In Arkansas, and I would argue United States history, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History, what did we hear? Well, it did make national uh, news. That was uh, November 9th of 1979 when Bill Clinton was sworn in for the very first time as governor. He was the 40th 
governor of Arkansas, and he was 32 years old. So, all right, tell me this. Uh-huh. What were you doing when you were 32? So 32 would have been 19. I was producing Ozarks at Large. I was doing what I'm doing now. Okay. I was not governing a state. Well, no. I, I had was, not been attorney general. Hey, I was at KATV when I was okay. 32. I was executive producer, and I thought, boy, I'm an overachiever. And then you think about it, wasn't even close. Now, we were not 32 at this time. You oh, and I are teenagers. Right, right. Um, I was just about to start at Channel 7, though. I was just about to start at KTLO. Yeah, yeah. So we so, were kids. Yeah, but so let me ask you then, KATV, would they go, not gavel to gavel, would they go? Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they always, as we would say, you'd shoot the quarter, um, and they were live uh throughout the day and it's all started at the state capitol when bill clinton came uh the speaker of the house presented him with a key to the governor's office and he joked and said i'm glad i have this now because my staff came early this morning and they couldn't get into the office (laughs) so his first duty was to address uh, a joint session of the legislature So this is sort of how he started the day. All I expect from you is what I will earnestly try to give back, and that is that you be honest and open, that you always be willing to give me the benefit of the doubt, at least as to my good faith, as surely I will give you the benefit of that doubt. I do not shrink from conflict. I think it is a healthy thing. I believe in debate. I believe in working things out in the open. I believe that if you and I together can practice what we preach about government, I know that you and I together want to do what is right for our people. So if we can only practice what we preach, we can go away from the impending session with a great, great deal to be proud of. As you know well, this is a very happy day for me and for my family, and for the countless people across this state who have worked with me, who have labored for me, and for the people on my staff who have performed the public services for which I have gotten the credit. But this day is far, far more than a personal triumph or the triumph of a party. For today, we are passing the executive authority of this state under our Constitution and laws in a time-honored tradition. And I am mindful not only of the new initiatives that we will take together, but of the old and settled duties of basic public service, which together we must all perform. All right, that's Bill Clinton addressing the legislature. Right. First hours as governor. Yes. Now... About an hour earlier than that, uh, KTV, of course, was live in the Capitol, and reporters were grabbing whoever they could, and Amy Oliver grabbed Hillary Rodham mm-hmm. at the time and spoke to her about her upcoming role as First Lady. I think we have with us the uh, lady who in a few minutes will be the First Lady of Arkansas, Hillary Rodham. Hillary, we know that uh, you are an attorney. Uh, 
how, how, what kind of plans have you made to be First Lady of Arkansas? Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the kinds of work that we want to do um, on behalf of the state and some of the activities that uh, we will be active in, but we haven't made any final plans. We hope to be able to involve as many people from around the state and as many different interests and walks of life as we can in projects to better the state and our people. And I intend to continue practicing law because I think that uh, it's important that I s both stay in touch with people other than through political life so that I see people in contexts other than at receptions like this or people being nice to me and uh, asking me questions on TV. And I think it's also something I want to do because I've worked hard to attain these skills. But we are very excited and we believe that with the terrific help we have both at the mansion, the kind of of support of staff that we have, as well as our staff here in the governor's office and our political supporters all over the state, that we'll be able to get a lot done. You mentioned you wanted to keep in touch. Could it be that you have political aspirations of your own? No, I just uh, think it's, imp I don't have any except uh, for my husband, who I think is a terrific politician and a wonderful man. But uh, no, what I meant by that, Amy, is that I'd like to stay in touch in, in a way that gets me in contact with more people other than in the sort of, of um, stilted role that a first lady sometimes is put into. I don't want to see people just at official occasions. I don't want to see them just in the governor's mansion. I want to see them in the workplace. I want to see them in the courthouses. I want to go out and in my daily work as I interview people on cases, I will find out what's going on with them in their lives. And I think that will be a great benefit to both of us because we are going to need that kind of information. Are you going to find a conflict, though, with these official functions and your own duties as an attorney? Oh, I'm sure there will be conflicts. But as I said, I think that I have a lot of friends as well as um, our staff people who will help us uh, pitch hit if I can't make it, but I don't anticipate very many conflicts because most of the social functions occur at night, so there's no problem there. Um, and lunches, of course, are another way that we can bring people in for social affairs. So I really don't imagine uh, that there'll be very many time constraints. That was interesting in January 1979, I'm sure, but with the hindsight of history, well, it becomes incredibly fascinating. It was very interesting f for several reasons. First, she talked about the fact that she had no political aspirations. She talked about the fact that she was going to be very involved in uh, as her role uh, as first lady, not in a traditional sense, that she would be much more involved in the, in the politics and running of government. But what was very interesting at the time and a, and a little bit controversial is that she went by Hillary Rodham mm -hmm. and didn't take the Clinton name and – as a matter of fact, that you know how they put the name super down down below on she television was, screens. Yes, she was supered as Hillary Rodham, and then below it in parentheses, Mrs. Clinton. Oh, and wow. I don't know whose decision that was to do that, but you know that was that was part of the controversy of his first term. Yeah. You know, you're you're talking about Arkansas in 1979, very traditional, and it was kind of. I oh. guess frowned upon that she wouldn't take his name. Well, and also she wasn't an Arkansan. Right. And that, which of course is no fault of her, oh, not that changing right. your name is a, something that, that's your fault either, but but, but that was held was, against her yeah, by exactly. a lot of people. Well, and a lot of his staff, you know, they were young mm -hmm. and some people called them hippies, really. <laughs> you know, they had longer hair and beards and... Um, they were, they were, it was a young staff. Yeah. He was a young governor. Well, he was 32 for crying out loud. Yeah. All right. So we've heard him talk to the legislature. We've heard Hillary Clinton interviewed by Amy Oliver. Yes. 
So he finishes the speech, and of course, as Bill Clinton <laughs> is known for now, he went down into the House chamber and greeted as many people as he could. So it took him several minutes to come out, but Frank Thomas, one of the reporters from KATV, was waiting outside the House chamber and grabbed him as he came out. The new governor leaves the House chamber. It will governor, be one of the... Uh, yeah, oh, I feel wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It was a nice, wonderful crowd. I was surprised by the size of it, and I think everybody's in a pretty good humor today. Apparently you have uh, the support of the, the legislature so far and the people of Arkansas. Now. Thank you. I hope so. I'll try to keep it. Thank you. Very young Bill Clinton. Yes. That's incredible. Um, last it's funny that in the, in the speech to the legislature, he seemed very, I don't want to say calm, mm -hmm. but sort of kind of sedate, almost nervous. Well, it's a you think? I would think it would be a humbling moment. Oh, yes. And he talked you, about it was a yeah. wonderful day for him. You've run for governor. Now you are governor. You're the chief executive of this state. As a very young man. As a very young man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. When we were talking about the 1994 election last week, right. you mentioned the competition between <laughs> yes. TV stations to get the results first. During these sorts of days when they would go... Even then. Yeah. Because, of course, at that time, the three television stations were there and you were competing to get something first. And so the the... The real thing was to grab the candidate or grab someone, and Amy Oliver, again, was waiting right outside his office and uh, snagged him before he came in. Steve, we have uh, Governor, like Clint, or Governor Clinton with us now. I'm uh, not sure if you can hear me. The uh, noise is so deafening in here, but Senator Max Howell as well. I'm sorry that I didn't get to hear much of your speech. There was quite a, uh, a bit of noise, but I did hear one mention, uh, one word, and that was hope and pride. Yes, I told the people in the, in the chamber today that one of the many people who came from out of state to this inaugural and was at our gala last night said that he traveled in his work around the country a lot, spoke to a lot of different groups, and that he felt more hope and pride in that crowd last night than any other place in this country where he'd been. And I think that's right, and all I said to the legislature was that I hope together we could justify the people's hope and the people's pride, and if we could, then we would surely have a successful time. What about the theme of your speech to, uh, tonight? Is that going to carry the same thing? Yes, but uh, tonight I will try to be more specific about my thoughts on the nature of the governor's office, the basic principles uh, that I believe in that will guide my actions and uh, the particular programs that I will promote. It won't be a very specific speech, but it'll be more specific than the one today. And it will deal more with my conception of the governor's office because I think that's important for me to share with the people of Arkansas as a whole. January 1979, when Bill Clinton is being... Uh well, it's his first day as governor of Arkansas. That's right. All right. It's been a few weeks since we've had um, historic Steve Barnes as part of our... Yes. <laughs> so it's time to rectify that. Well, he was anchoring the coverage. Right. And, you know, th there were really no scripts when you had live coverage like that. It was pretty much ad-libbed. And so I wanted to get this little clip of of Steve Barnes sort of off the cuff, uh, sort of looking at this new governor and then comparing him to past governors. He is a man who uh, is known, I think as we've covered him, he's, he's known as a detail man. He, 
his predecessor, Governor Pryor, was widely regarded as more of a conceptual thinker uh, as an executive, as a manager, than uh, uh, his predecessor, Dale Bumpers, who, uh, like Mr. Clinton is reported to be, was uh, very much a detail man. Uh, Governor Clinton, or Governor Bumpers, uh, I know, could always be counted on to know uh, uh, precisely how many state vehicles uh, were on the, were in the uh, Arkansas fleet at, uh, at any given time, and how many professors in all the state-supported colleges and universities had uh, uh, doctorates or, or above. And, and Bill Clinton is uh, supposedly uh, that uh, that sort of man. So there's another swearing in, right? But this is for the public, and thousands of people came, and it's usually. Uh, outside on the steps of the state capitol, and he came out. It was pretty cold. It was January, but uh, he was sworn in, and he took off his overcoat. And um, as they alluded to earlier, uh, this was a portion of his address to the public. At the outset, I wish to acknowledge what we all know well. I did not come here alone. I was carried by the people of our state through the efforts of those who have known and nourished me in the hope that together we might make a difference to the future of Arkansas. Without the sacrifices, affection, and inspiration of my family, my friends, and my staff, in political combat and public service, I would be elsewhere tonight. Without the love, courage, patience, and counsel of my wife, I might not be worthy to be here tonight. To all of you and to the people at large, I am grateful and humbly so for the gift of this precious office. He caught a lot of flack about being so young and was second-guessed about a lot of the decisions, and there were a few blunders that he admits uh, lost him the election. I mean, he would say after Frank White defeated him, that he was the youngest ex-governor <laughs> right. in the country. Because it was only two years back then. Yes. And um, what lost him, uh, the main thing is he, he had a, a huge highway plan that he raised uh, to, to raise the money, raised the cost of tar car tags, mm -hmm. which made pretty much everyone who had a car in the state mad. Uh, he also... Uh, infuriated the truckers, mm -hmm. the poultry industry, the timber industry. <laughs> but then the other one was, I mean, he helped get Jimmy Carter elected when he was attorney general. He uh, was his campaign manager in Arkansas and in Texas. And Jimmy Carter ended up, when they had the, the boat lift mm -hmm. from Cuba, sent refugees to Fort Chaffee. Which didn't sit well with a lot of Arkansans Well, at the time. and it didn't go well either. Right. There were riots and all sorts of problems. And so Frank White campaigned on Cubans and car tags. And Frank White wins, yes. upset. Then Bill Clinton comes back. Two years later. And wins again yes. after a mea and culpa. Is, and is in office for 10 more years. All right. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. How can you find out more about the Pryor Center? Google Pryor Center, P-R-Y-O-R, in any search engine, and you can go to the KATV section or go to the Arkansas Memory section and look at uh, interviews we've done with Arkansans. Randy, as always, thank you. Thank you. See you next week. KUAF is supported by TC Screen Printing and Apparel.
and the Arkansas Shirt Club, offering a subscription-based monthly mail delivery of Arkansas-themed t-shirts celebrating the good people, outdoors, and places called home. Subscription information and more available at ArkansasShirtClub.com. Earlier this hour, we told you about the success of the Arkansas Razorback and JBU women's soccer teams this weekend. But it's the time of year when almost, almost every collegiate sport is in action in some form. The Razorback women's basketball team, 2-1 and one after losing to number 2 UConn yesterday in Connecticut. The Razorbacks, you might recall, were the only team to beat UConn in the regular season last year. Up next for the Razorback women, a cross-state game with Arkansas State. That'll be in Jonesboro Friday night. The Razorback men's team, 2-0. and They'll host Northern Iowa Wednesday night in Bud Walton Arena. And Razorback volleyball, just four matches left in the regular season, including Wednesday night's away game against Texas A&M and College Station. The last two matches for the Razorback volleyball team at home, both against Mississippi State, are this Saturday evening at 5 and then Sunday afternoon at 3 in Barnhill Arena. I could keep going, but we don't have time. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sonora. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich, Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional content today came from the hardworking newsroom at KUAR, that's public radio, for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. You can stay up to date every weekday morning with news from around the state and our region with Daniel Carruth. He delivers morning newscasts at 5.30 and 7.30 inside Morning Edition from the Karen Taha News Studio. I'm in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Please get rest when you can. Take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.